0: Could you please pronounce your name correctly for me? That's a
1: Norwegian pronunciation. It would be Per Plateau. With this kind of, you go a bit up on the
0: last syllable. Per was the first? Per. Yeah,
1: that's like Pierre in French, but it's pair, like Peter, actually. And then Plateau which sounds and looks French. And it actually stems from, it's my mother's family name and it comes from a German small town where I've never been called Platov, Platov. But it's
0: Plateau. I say normally like Plato. It all sounds great to me. All right, so the first thing I always want to know about people is sort of how they got made so like your your childhood, where, how did you become creative? So were your parents creative, some great teachers? Like what was the thing that led you down that path?
1: I think it was mainly I was left to myself a lot. I had two younger siblings and my parents were both working. My father as a kind of a trade magazine publisher and my mom as a Norwegian teacher at the American school outside Oslo. You know happy childhood kind of thing with, with a dog, some kind of vicinity to nature. So I was doing all kinds of sports, played piano, played all kinds of flutes, every, and I started playing in the marching band in at school. So I played clarinet, saxophone, bass drum, or whatever you call it in the marching band. That was my creative. And I started making magazine uh, Yeah, scenes. I guess it was called. I was too young to know what it was called, but it was kind of publications somehow, writing about uh, anything, very stupid, uh, of course. And I had friends that were very good artists, so they were drawing and making kind of movies with 8 millimeter, Super 8 kind of thing. So I grew up in like 70s in, in Oslo, Norway, very safe, very solid. Norway was kind of a social democracy, which... With today's glasses on, it would be like almost like communism. I mean, we had one TV channel. It started at, I guess, we didn't even have a TV when I was a kid. But I think TV that back then started at six o'clock with children's TV and then it kind of stopped at 11. And radio started, now stopped one channel, two, and they stopped at midnight playing the national anthem, you know. So that was, sounds a bit like Albania or or North Korea. I didn't know that back then. So I was happy. I was good at school. This kind of kid that was bright and I guess a bit too kind of almost showing off like playing piano at the school at the end of year kind of, you know, party and all that. I was the head of the student council and My granddad was a kind of commercial, successful guy. So I went to kind of trade school for for secondary, or what you call that, from 16 to 18, high school.
0: Yeah, high school school. in the United States, yeah.
1: But I hated it from day one, when I started there. I really, really hated it, because that was all the real prep boys. And they were so – I hated – everyone there i was still doing well at school but i hated it sincerely so i started hanging out with punks from other schools this was around 19 early 80s you know so obviously punk was going on i was so that was when i kind of ventured out of the ordinary so to say and and started to go my own way and I don't know how that creativeness, it was probably more like a producer or someone who made things happen and started working on radio, started organizing concerts, because it was a DIY period. I mean, this era of where everyone made a fanzine or started a band or made movies, or it was the ethos of the time. And I was a little bit too young to be a real punk or at least i felt so and i didn't have a you know mohawk or didn't color my hair like bright red or black and my parents still they they always supported me and they still do in a certain way so but they kind of shake their hands and well that's all fine and good but when are you going to make some money and i said oh stop that
0: still now at the at your age they're still giving you that grief
1: no they stopped because they i have Proven in a certain way that I could make a living of what I'm actually doing, so now they they gave up that, and now they're kind of they still shake their heads, but that's because of they don't they don't manage to listen to my audio works or see my <laughs> stage works or they don't really get it, but they enjoy it, so we're kind of a kind of happy family, I guess, so it's all that's the most important thing. So I always kind of searched for the Kind of fringes and grew up with that and, and then started after radio started a magazine then started a kind of a hub for with a kind of cafe kind of tiny tiny book cafe record store with a couple of magazines some artist studios and we were hanging out there all the time and friends came along and then you know things started happening so it was kind of a network this was while I was studying. I didn't care so much about the, the studies, but I did manage actually. I passed my exams. It was kind of everything was happening at once. And I I didn't consider myself an artist at the time. So that came kind of later because I, I saw from all the other so-called artists that they they just pushed a record button on their audio equipment or just you know exhibited like their well. Not the shit literally at that time, but but you know, they could make a blank drawing, you know, with a just kind of uh, yeah, what shall I say, Rotko kind of style, or or they were just kind of
0: abstract. We can go with abstract, yeah.
1: Abstract and very kind of performative art in a certain way. So then at some point I did it for fun, I applied to the artist union, then they actually rejected me because I didn't have an education and all that. And then it, that set me on fire. So then I wrote this kind of almost like an harassment letter. And I told them how, how, where they could stick their heads, you know, up there.
0: Where the sun don't shine.
1: And then actually, like a week later, I received a phone call from one member of the board in that young artists association. And they said, oh, they had made the mistake. And I was certainly most welcome there. And, and they even asked if I wanted to be a member of the board. So that kind of made me in a certain way. Because I, I what I had submitted was a cassette recording. I worked for my dad's office at night. I was cleaning up, you know, all the office equipment and stuff that was going to trash what do you call it? This machine that crunches trash.
0: Mm, trash compactor.
1: Trash compactor, exactly. So I made this little a set piece or a kind of cassette with like eight different kind of pieces on. And that was like eight office chairs, brand so-and-so, time, you know, two o'clock at a.m. And then the other one was two Siemens computers, so-and-so, HT252. So I made like eight little pieces and that's what I submitted. And no one got that at that time. It was probably around, well, early 90s. But then, I mean, obviously sound art and all that stuff came later. So I guess I was a little bit ahead of my time, but I was almost doing it as a kind of provocation or as a kind of joke to prove that, you know, to prove use of voice that everyone's an artist, all that stuff.
0: Well, I often wonder actually about the idea of like, when we're making arts, like when I'm making my work, I often think like, am I ahead of the curve or am I behind the curve? Yeah, right. And and you'd never know until like decades later, even if you were even close to the curve.
1: Well, I have learned, or that's probably my own big ego, but you know, that I kind of think I'm ahead of the curve, but it's still kind of, it's a kind of a, almost like sad situation because I, I've seen it time after time, and this is again my big ego speaking. But you know, you see it coming like ten years later, but while you're actually doing what you're, whatever you're doing, well, they think it's just kind of a bit off in a certain way. Why don't just do it like normal? Oh, you were so good at playing piano, or you're so good at this or that. And, <laughs> and then you do something else and then a couple of years later everyone starts using that term but then they already forgot that you even did it and then i'm probably onto to something new so it's a kind of a lonely position but i guess that goes for most artists and respective works
0: well i was gonna say like so does that to you does that mean like that is the role of the artist to sort of be the leader to be the person who comes up with that new thing that everybody else then follows
1: I did grow up with that idea. My friend, who was this brilliant artist in his own way, he went to all art schools. And because I asked him, you know, all these very naive, simple questions, what is art? And, and he said it's kind of a, well, what's the word in, in English? It's juxtaposition, not not really juxtaposition, but it's a kind of a, in the it would be for schievening. Maybe in German, it would be something like, well, you put two... Let's say you put two objects and you move one of them a little bit.
0: Um, hmm. Well, a juxtaposition is putting two things, the, just the things side by side is juxtaposition.
1: Yeah, so it's a kind of a juxtaposition, but it's not like oppositional. It's not like they're contrasting or anything, but maybe a juxtaposition is actually a pretty good word. And then I was influenced by the, you know, everyone that was romanticizing the avant-garde in a certain way. You know, all the young dead artists and all that, who later became legends. So the avant-garde certainly had an impact of how I framed my world back then. But but I haven't really, it's just like I have ideas about what I think is a good society, how a society and, and people should behave, and curiosity is certainly a big part of it. Do tell, do tell. I love these stories, yes. So I'm curious about anything, you know, it could be the guy at the counter in the shop and actually how his actual work, what it consists of. I'm not so interested what he or she watches on TV at night. Maybe it would be, but it's more like how our lives are intertwined in so complex ways and how I want to kind of like this young a child who wants to understand how everything works really.
0: Oh yeah, my favorite question that my parents constantly uh, berate me for is that I always ask, why?
1: Yeah, exactly, That's that's the thing. So why and also how, but
0: how exactly, how does that work, how does it work? Well, that that's the fun one that you can figure out as a general whole, like, you know, like, t- you know, how, how does a microwave work? Well, you can just take apart a microwave and figure that out. You know, how does a toaster work? So how is reasonably sort of that's the the technical process of the creating something by you know dismantling it and figuring it out. But but why it works, that's exponentially more difficult to me.
1: Yeah. Why? And but the why and the how they are connected somehow.
0: I think I, there, maybe they're the balance of the sort of the process and product and the 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 um, the aesthetics versus the concept kind of thing. So like there, there's it's that balance that exists throughout art as well. Right. Right. Exactly.
1: I, did you, by the way, did you read this book called The Toaster Project? Uh, no. No. That's a great because it's a the author wonders how he wants to build his own toaster because he is broken and then he wants to assemble his own and to get all the parts it's a whole book and it's such a fascinating story of every little part and why and how and you know it's it's fantastic actually
0: lovely i'll be sure to pick it up all right i want to ask something about your life, your creative life. I notice a lot of your work throughout your life. So you've been sort of making music, then you've worked in theater, you've done installations and performances. You have this, uh, sort of trajectory of working very collaboratively Uh, and that's not and that's very to me that's very unique among the arts industry um, outside of theater and and other places that are very collaborative but in the arts and you know the visual arts working collaboratively is not very common and I feel like it takes a certain kind of a person or certain ethos of a person to put their ego a little bit in check and you know work collaboratively with others so how did you even come to sort of being a collaborative artist?
1: I guess it started because I was then setting up this kind of hub, uh, this kind of store, or, you know, it was with all these little offices where we did things. And I started it just out of interest for music, but then we did become even a local political party. And so that was the social, well, arena around that. And then I worked in radio, which is also kind of a social, at least among ourselves, it was a student radio. So so when I actually started doing making art myself, it was because I met a choreographer who later became my girlfriend and also creative partner. We started working together. So it was never out of the equation in a certain way. I mean, I sensed early on that the artist, you know, the, the genius solo artist the whole art world is framed to be this solo this genius uh, basically
0: speaking yes that's that's exactly my point (laughs) yeah but
1: i wasn't a painter i never made anything like visual to hang on the wall or things like that so for me the way to get there was obviously while playing in bands and all that it came kind of naturally and maybe it's also because my technical skills I've never been, I mean, I'm not the worst, but I'm not brilliant in kind of anything, I guess. I'm pretty good at lots of things. And I'm still, like we talked about, like curious and all that. So so I guess the collaborativeness also, I know it triggers, well, I'm jumping actually to, to today in a certain way where I try to make solo things and I find it hard because I miss the thing I also hate, you know, of course, like resistance, but I miss the resistance other people and also the little things that just kind of happen in the serendipity of any project. And serendipity is a key word in my kind of whole life, but also in, in a project when you're working with one or more people, there are so many little things that influence how this project will becomes. And I love those. And I... Kind of learn to really, really appreciate it, and, and go with the flow, rather than fight against it, and, and be the you know the engineer, let's say, who has to do things by the drawing or by the map.
0: Well, you're saying that like being collaborative is getting some pushback and all that, and and it's true. But uh, what I've learned, and of course, like if I'd known this twenty years ago, it would have been very helpful. But and sadly, I didn't. Is that Being even a solo artist, like working in your studio, that's all fine and good, but there's a necessity for even those people to be collaborative because they need curators or gallerists or, uh, you know, other people. So like, even though they think they're there, these solo people sort of off in their own little world doing their thing, all they're doing is they're sort of making a product. And then once they bring that product, quote unquote, let's say to market, Uh, they need to collaborate with other people. So even being an individual solo artist is a very collaborative process, if done correctly.
1: Absolutely. And this is also kind of ethically and maybe politically. What I don't like so much about the visual art world is that they never credit those other people, except maybe in the kind of introduction or in the credits and credits, you know, somewhere in the catalog or hidden away. But it's always this... Idea of this solo genius. And I'm very, you know, back to music and, and maybe the 80s or when hip hop came along and you saw credit lists like, because I was really into music. I read all the little notes on the, you know, vinyl records and who played bass there. And, and oh, that woman is singing along on, on the chorus, you know, on that song five. And I miss that so much in the visual art world. Because I thought maybe, maybe I'm not sure about this, but I'm also one of those guys. And I discovered, you know, by working together with people and we gave each other credit all the time and critique. We took everything we did, like now I'm talking maybe the radio period. You know, we criticized, we listened to each other's radio shows and then had this kind of almost like public critique sessions, where we listened and went through, oh, there, you played that, and you said that, and why didn't you ask that to that person? Or So it was very kind of helpful, and I thought we, we took credit together, and later also in rock and roll bands and all kinds of different bands. It's so you're the three musketeers, but you're together. I mean, you win together, you lose together in a certain way. And I love that feeling also. That's I guess most people do, maybe not in their artistic endeavor, but but as you said, there's always lots of people around, even the most prominent solo artists.
0: Oh, sure. I mean, I used to work in uh, as a roadie. I used to tour around with rock and roll bands doing their lights and sound. So, like, I mean, it takes an army to put on a concert uh, at a certain level. It's not a solo job by any stretch of the imagination. I mean, I did the u2 tour one year and it took it took a hundred people seven days to install the stage and lights and sound
1: exactly yeah well but then you know the whole mechanics this whole machinery and it's so also every little piece in that machinery has a function obviously if the guitar tuner for the edge doesn't do his job
0: oh oh he would be fired yeah no that would that's the i mean if I screwed up my job at that time, they would just, they'd fill in with another body. It didn't matter. I wasn't that, uh, I wasn't that special or unique, but yeah, the guitar tuner, absolutely.
1: Or, you know, or the sound man, if you fire off the, the pyro at the wrong moment, it's, it's kind of super silly. It's like it suddenly becomes spinal tap, you know? So that kind of thing is kind of delicate.
0: Oh yeah. I've seen that happen too. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. But I love the collaborativeness and not because it's easy, because of course, like now and especially the last year, it's hard to do collaborative works. So I've sat alone for a lot and it's kind of it has its good sides. I mean I've read more, I've more time for my well, solo works. But but then it's harder because I I don't know when to stop. I don't know which is what's good, what's crap no one kind of tells me oh stop that you've done that for two hours now or if i make some sound or music no one even to say hey when he you had it the first three minutes were great and then why are you still doing it
0: oh it's hard i i do the same thing i I find that I I ride that line of either underworking, so I haven't done enough to a piece, or I overwork it and it's just it's too, you know, just, well, overworked is the easiest word for it. It's really hard to find that perfect, like, that's the right resolution of this idea, whether it's in sound or, or painting or whatever. Exactly. And it helps with other people
1: there, because at least you can sometimes agree that part was magical, and that was maybe not so important. But of course, I mean, the deadlines in the real world, in the art world, or in the performance or theater world, or whatever, which world you are in, I mean, it's always tough. I know I'm kind of lazy. I am very eager at the start. And then I maybe, if it's too long time, I lose momentum. And then it comes back the last couple of weeks. And then I don't sleep, you know, you're nervous, you think it's crap, you think it's fantastic next minute and next morning it's crap again. And, you know, you're sleepless. And then, but then it just happens. And sometimes it becomes kind of good works because you didn't actually have time to polish that part, an integral part of
0: whatever worked. Oh, you're not alone. I have the same problem.
1: Yeah. I could imagine. <laughs> I think we, lots of us actually do have that and we know it. And it's hard, just like you say, like underworked or overworked. And it's very, very hard without other people. And, or at least it could be a curator, just a partner, but you know, like a friend or a girlfriend or my kids, they wouldn't be the right people to actually say because they could just want to be. To kind of please me and say oh that's fine that's fine that's good oh it sounds great
0: oh yeah i'm a teacher and i'm constantly telling my students i'm like show your work to anybody except a loved one or a relative because they're all going to be just like really polite and nice they're not going to give you an actual good critique no
1: but on the other hand just to keep the conversation going it's also hard and i'm not so good at actually taking critique when i'm in the process because i'm it's so vulnerable, and I feel I'm. I wear everything. I can't hide behind any pretensions, or it's. So that's so vulnerable. I'm like a turtle on on my back, you know. So because it, I haven't finished my work until it's finished. You just have to trust me. And this, luckily, I've been lucky to work with one company called Vat Productions, a theatre company. I worked with them for now 17 years and lots of productions and they just kind of trust me it doesn't mean we don't fight all the time about everything i mean all of us fight at least it's a great fight because it's based on kind of a certain trust and we all know that we will have the premiere and we will make this and it will be some dynamics built into itself this work it's kind of it's not a static kind of thing. We're not fascists. We don't think the same. We don't, <laughs> we don't like to say art or music or literature. You know, it's, it will always have some built-in resistance, which I think, well, at least to me, good art has that kind of duality, at least, or complexity.
0: I agree, I agree 100% with critiques. They're incredibly difficult and emotional and and vulnerable positions to be in. I personally hate them mostly when I'm still in the middle of a project. Yeah. Um once I'm done with it and I've and I'm I feel confident with it and I've put it out into the world, I I still don't really love a critique, but but I'll take it better on the chin than when I'm in the middle because one thing that I find difficult is being questioned sort of halfway through so like you you haven't gotten to a resolution you don't know the answers yourself and people are already starting to question it and I find that very difficult though in all in, in admittance like I often find it the most helpful uh later but at the moment it's the most difficult thing like in the moment to receive those things
1: I absolutely agree with you. Yeah, it's the same here, because but it's important critique also because it puts up questions that you didn't know were there maybe, and because it comes always from an unexpected angle. Always, I mean, there's no exception to that.
0: Well, a, a good critique would.
1: Yeah, but even the bad ones. Well, maybe I just kind of ignore them in a certain way. The the bad or this the things that oh not doesn't sound like. The Doors. I mean, I know that because it's a synthesizer and some kind of transducer microphone <laughs> recording on the water or whatever. That I know it doesn't sound like The Doors or Biosphere, but or this is hard to play on the radio. I mean, this is not a critique to me. That would just be like a very silly friend who wouldn't I wouldn't hang out with <laughs> too often. <laughs>
0: A critique for me though should be constructive. That's you know, I, I don't the, the cause the critique and critic are, are very too similar and they're they're often equated with simply just judgment, whereas a constructive criticism is is su- supportive and potentially like opening some doors or, or offering a different path that maybe you hadn't thought of. That that's very helpful. Um but yeah, criticism I'm not. Uh, uh, I mean, I guess it's healthy in the industry, but I don't really appreciate it.
1: <laughs> no, but of course it doesn't have to be constructive because I also appreciate, you know, questions, like people ask questions and without having knowing the answer to them, which is great because it's like, so let's say they, you've started something where you put some, let's say in a theatrical play, you have a certain dramaturgy and you introduce some kind of sets of this particular reality in that play, and then you later forget because so much happened during the next hour that you forget. And if someone says, but what happened to that? Or aren't you breaking your own rules or something like that? And, and then sometimes it's so obvious and it's like, oh shit, you're right. So questions, but, but also constructive critique, like you say, definitely.
0: Indeed. All right. I want to move on to another topic that I saw on your Wikipedia page, which again, I think is incredibly admirable that you even have a Wikipedia page. I want to get one of those some days, but, but you, it talks about, uh, copyright issues in art and music and sampling and all this kind of stuff. So like, give me like your position on all that stuff, but just to get started.
1: Growing up in seventies, eighties, we didn't have like what I call normal cassettes, but it's maybe for not for everyone, but these, uh, yeah, cassettes. I, I just choose to call them cassettes and pretending people know what it is. But so I recorded from radio, you know, music.
0: Just to be sure, I'm I'm close to your generation. I know fully know what a cassette is. Yeah, I know you do,
1: but actually I'm surprised. But even it's come back into kind of some kind of hipster fashion, I guess. So people know what cassettes are.
0: Vinyl is back in fashion for sure. That's very trendy and collectible. For sure, but cassettes. Also, the
1: last kind of 5 years. I could discuss that for hours, but let's I, I'll stick to question. Well, so I started recording and then you with hip hop or, you know, early sorts of hip-hop with all these kind of credits, I thought it was suddenly interesting to discover what a kind of collage is. It's snippets of things. And we've all seen it in, even in school books or even newspapers or magazines or commercials, these kind of collages of things. Yeah, set up juxtapositions like we talked about. So, and when I started making music myself using a computer, in the 90s, I mean, that's what the computer is is best at and still is. It's copy, paste, copy, paste. That's the, that's the essence of a, what a computer does. So to copy and paste sound snippets and even grooves and try to assemble them, we started doing that all the time. And then I met other people doing kind of more or less the same. This was the early days of music online music and all that kind of stuff and i started reading up a little bit about how the industry the record industry and the copyright industry works and i found it kind of unfair that let's say someone plays some very well-known music on an event and you record something on that event let's say you do something with your hands and you want to record that sound or just the background sound of a festival you know festival crowd or something and then someone would say no you can't use that because it's that music in the background and documentary filmmakers that i knew what's this why are they doing that and with sampling you're not allowed to sample things that are on the radio 100 times a day you know and use it as a kind of a cheeky kind of reference in a certain way, contextual reference, which I thought was would be so, well, I still think it's good when people pick up that those little, what's now called, I'm not sure if I'm correct in saying memes, but you know, all these little pop cultural street smartness kind of
0: little things. I would go with memes, sure, that sounds right to me, but I'm also of your generation. So yeah, preaching to the choir. So I sound, meme sounds right.
1: So in a way, that's the kind of the fairness of the whole thing. So I started getting involved with and when we started, me and a friend started making music online, like in 94, 95. I, when I first got connected on the, online, I, the first thing I started looking for was sounds. Anyway, there was this guy in Italy, I think, running something called Musicians Against the Copywriting of Samples, Marcos. And I thought it was oh, brilliant. And then, but then I got, I'm also a member. I did make some songs, wrote some songs, so I'm a member of the, art uh, the composers kind of union, and the right holders union, whatever it's called.
0: I have no idea because it it, these unions and stuff are pretty much a european thing we don't have these things in america
1: well you do have them because someone collects the money i guess for you know
0: yeah we have like royalties and that kind of stuff yeah royalties exactly yeah
1: and they are so much against they say oh this is taking away our livelihood and our living because people are pirating music and i said come on you can afford it you too you can afford it there's this famous case with you two and this group negative land from the states Anyway, so I found it very unfair and I thought this is a culture where we're being drowned in so much cultural content and we're not allowed to even comment culturally on them. I thought that was super unfair. So I started fighting it. Like the other thing I told you about, this was mostly for fun, like a cheeky kind of, you know, F, fuck you, we're going to do this anyway. So see what come and get me. And they tried to get me a couple of times because... I did maybe went over the line to a certain extent, but it it became like a gesture, became this kind of gesture. And then some people started following me because of that. So I became like this kind of hero for a certain small part of the underground. So then I kind of enjoyed that position. But I still think the copyright societies, they actually won this game. I mean, now everyone's using Spotify. I've become the, the old guy. Who still, I do, do buy my music online on Bandcamp and stuff like that. But also, while I'm still sampling, but now it's so cheesy, everyone does it. So if you do it too, obviously, like I did playfully back in the 90s, it's now considered very, very cheesy.
0: What even in the visual arts, we have the issue of like appropriation, um, you know, to people taking images and then reworking them. So, like, I mean I'm it's tough like I understand the c- complaint that the composers and and you know creators of music and visual arts have against appropriation and copyright infringement and all that because I am a creator and I'm like I don't want people to steal my stuff and then them make money off of it and I make nothing off of it
1: no but you have this notion in the US and it's actually better lots of or along when it comes to fair use because you at least you have this paragraph called
0: fair use in the U.S. law. La- please elaborate on fair use then. Well, fair use, it, it's
1: allowed to take a little snippet of, let's say, a cultural content. Like you could use a, a sentence from Seinfeld on TV or, you know, for satire, you can use it for quotes because you need to show what you're actually, you say, Kramer is a right-wing or, you know, anti-Semitic or something, you know, you remember this story a long time ago. And you want to know what is it actually about. So you hear this thing that he actually said, which is controversial, let's say. I'm talking about now a public figure who said something. But then the right holder, let's say his publishing company, would say, no, no. We've taken this away. We've removed it. You can't hear it. You're not allowed to ever play that recording of this guy saying that. So it kind of takes away this kind of free speech. It takes away every kind of fair or people's ability to make a fair opinion on stuff. So fair use is like you're actually allowed to quote even like a famous poet or something. You can actually quote him or her. And in music and in art and all. So, but you can't exploit it. So I can't record like Rolling Stones and then sample it for four beats and then put on a rhythm and just release it and cash in millions of dollars because it became a kind of a cult hit. And that's a kind of a fair use that if you make money from it, you are exploiting someone else's work. But if you're doing it as a comment, it's, well, non-commercial in a certain way. But then this is, of course, more complex when you start diving into that. Because I, for instance, I'm not a famous person, but I make a living from, let's say, or you as a professor, as a teacher, you are, of course, you're digesting other people's work and you're reciting it in front of your students. So in a certain way, we're all part of that machinery
0: years ago, well not many years ago but 8 9 years ago uh, we actually had an issue where um some artists and publishing houses so that published like art history books and stuff started to ask for uh, like royalties basically for creating slide lectures using images from the publications even though they were used in an educational setting and that was a big sort of like what? <laughs> like that was, I, I never understood that, that issue.
1: No, because it's, I mean, I'm paid for, I mean, we all make a living somehow. I mean, lots of us.
0: Uh, hopefully we all make a living.
1: <laughs> hopefully, yeah. But let's say in principle, either get money from public fund or the state or some workplace or a university or institution where you work or you sell your works maybe basically. Like, and I'm between all those categories. And I guess you are too, because you're an artist and you're a teacher and probably lots of other things.
0: Indeed, yes.
1: So it's a kind of complex, but we should also, I mean, it has become the way that those with lots of money, the lawfare kind of term, it means like it's warfare and, and law mixed together. So the rich people, they pay off to protect their rights extra while they themselves kind of grab or steal, if you like, from other artists. And I learned this back then, and I guess it must have been the 90s, when Madonna and, you know, even Beastie Boys, actually, they sample from lots of people. Madonna samples from ABBA, and of course she gets that cleared before she uses it, and she gets permission, and she pays probably a lot to use that sample from that she uses in
0: this Gimme Gimme. Oh yeah, I, I always wondered about Paul's boutique. Yeah. Like how could they do that album? Because like it it's all samples. It's all samples. And I love that.
1: I love that because if you credit, if you use the old hip hop, call it ethos. It's like you sample, it's an honor. If I sample you, if I sample this conversation, it's an honor. It should be an honor to you. And I would credit you for making this recording. Then I would later resample it, using it on the track, blah, blah, blah. And it would be considered an honor. I pay my dues to my, you know, four mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters, you know. This was how it worked. And I love that kind of maybe a little bit like a hippie.
0: Yeah, a little bohemian.
1: Yeah, bohemian. So I hate it when those rights are kind of, I mean, like even Beastie Boys, especially Madonna, of course she pays off ABBA but she also steals from all these little guys on soundcloud or wherever they are without even mentioning them
0: well in music sampling it gets even more difficult because like you can just hear something and go like hey and and not even realize it like so not actively or intentionally but you could be influenced by having heard a beat or a rhythm or whatever and then suddenly you put it in and people are like hey you stole that and you're like no i i just heard it it was just you know i was in a friend's car and they were playing it and it just sort of re- was in my brain like there, it's really hard to sort of prove the difference between active intentional stealing versus just it was in the ethos and you just sort of heard it and it just became part of your music like that's a really difficult thing to prove exactly And sometimes it's
1: subconsciously. Indeed. You sit in that car, you have a really good time, and, you know, it's just a beat. You didn't even notice you were in the car with friends and you were having fun. And then a week later, or at least for me, I could sit and make something, and then suddenly that beat kind of comes back to me, and I might steal the whole kind of main riff or whatever to call it without even knowing it and this has happened to thousands of artists over the times so it's all a part of i mean i like to say like we drink from and we swim in and we piss in the same river it's like a soup you know we swim in it and we drink from it and we piss in it i like that metaphor
0: yeah i would say something like uh art's not made in a vacuum so we're we're constantly influenced by all of our life experiences like i always notice that like the color palettes that I start using are because I happen to notice those colors a lot, uh, sort of just in existence. Like I'll just be walking by stores or seeing other people's apartments or cars or whatever, things with colors in them. And suddenly I'm like, oh, you know, those colors are beautiful. And like, it just it's not an intentional change in my belief of colors, but it's just because of the prevalence of them in my daily life. Right.
1: But anyway, I think the politics... Back to the sampling question. And in general, I think there's too little talk of actual, I'm not by politics, I'm not a Marxist. I, I don't vote the Marxist party or anything, but I like Marxistic kind of analysis where you go back to follow the money kind of thing. So the structures of how to make art and how what do those structures allow you to do and in what way, I'm curious to find the, well, in exploring that territory in a certain way, which is not like being on the barricade. And I mean, that's also important, of course, or union work or all that comes without saying, but it's the politics of how the institutions work like they do. Let's say, because if I ask, why do you keep on having this kind of solo artist genius model? Why do you still keep doing that? Why don't you give credits to everyone like the roadies or, You know what I mean? It could be collaborative. Why do art groups have such a big problem with getting through instead of, as opposed to, solo artists? And this is kind of politics.
0: In the same way in music, where the musician or the singer or the band gets all the acclaim, but not necessarily so much the producer.
1: Exactly. Or even the songwriter. There was this big story just yesterday or two days ago, how now some Hollywood's big music business songwriters, they are tired of not getting the respect they, they feel they deserve because the artists, the big artists especially, they even they claim, like if you're super big, let's say you're, I mean, this is just an example, but if you're Lady Gaga and someone has written a song and your producers have said, this song you should do. And then Lady Gaga says, or her management says, yeah, we'll use your song which, I mean, it was. if it was you, you know it would make you millions. A recorded song, it might even become the single. And you know, oh, wow, I can buy that house now if that becomes a hit. But then they say, but I'm not sure if I'm going to do it. How many percentages would you give me for recording it? And then they have to actually, they sell their rights to that song to make any money at all. Okay, wait,
0: I'm not in the... Music industry these days is it done like I know in the old days songwriters would write a song for an artist and they would just pay them a flat fee generally like hey here's five hundred dollars for the song is it still done that way or is it done by percentages these days like he
1: it's usually as far as I know I'm kind of out of this business a long time ago I know it's never really in it but I think you get like fifteen percent twenty percent that's normal the flat fee. But of course, it's more complex because if it's being used in, let's say, as part of the right holders, man if you buy the publishing rights of a song, you can use it for a commercial, you can exploit it in different ways in different territories and so and so. So if you sell a song to the famous artist and you get, let's say, a flat fee or a percentage, I think that's done very, very differently across the line.
0: Well, I mean, well, I'm also, I'm, I'm very pessimistic and very sort of a conspiracy theorist. And so like, I, I, I'm, I would sit there and be like, yeah, okay, that's all fine. Let's say it's a percentage. Well, then those people, because like they do this in the movie industry as well, where they say, oh, the actors worked for percentage, but the, the movie industry then can just cook their books and just say, oh no, we didn't make any money on it. So we're not going to pay you anything, even though they made a hundred million dollars. Exactly.
1: And this is the same way it works because if you have good lawyers, I mean they would make lots of money to to just make sure you get $1 or you don't get $1. It always ends up $1 below zero. It's, I've read my John Didion, you know, the white album essays. They're brilliant. Have you read them?
0: I'm sorry. Wait, say the name again?
1: John Didion. It's a kind of essayist, American, uh, the Hollywood chronicler, to say she's she's dead now but she's brilliant and she has one little essay where she describes that model of the producers always ending up one dollar below zero that's a perfect because they always make more they produce expenses to make more money for themselves
0: advertising expenses travel expenses whatever yeah
1: yeah yeah all of that but the flat fee again let's say I, I do write a few songs and if someone came to me and say well i'll pay you $2000 and you know it's a pretty famous person or this could become a hit or a flat fee of 20 or 2000 it's like hmm i think it's worth more and they say okay five and then it's like shit should i do this or shouldn't i and they know that so I think the politics of the neoliberal system is kind of terrible. And I'm depressed as you are.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I I hope I'm not depressed, but I am uh, disillusioned, let's say.
1: Yeah, okay, disillusioned. I'm not depressed, but it's kind of grim. It's actually grim. I see some hopes, though, across the globe amongst the younger generations that
0: well, okay. So, like, on that topic, what are you, what are your, what's your opinion knowledge about NFTs?
1: What's that? Oh, is that the Bitcoin things?
0: The non-fungible something, yeah.
1: Oh yeah, you know, I don't have an opinion on it.
0: Okay, that's fine.
1: But I have some a reference because I've been a lot doing lots of electronic art kind of stuff, and I was kind of early adopter and kind of. I use that a lot with this choreographer, Amanda Stegel. and we started using you know, cameras and all this kind of equipment very early on. And, and that also showed me the world of net art, like net dot art, which is a particular kind of a little corner of Internet art. It was more kind of conceptual in a certain way. And the big question, because lots of people, the record industry, the music industry, the movie industry, the book publishers, they said, oh, with the internet, we're going to lose our lives, or it's going to take all our money from us because it's all free out there. It's like a piracy and all that. Because it was a Russian artist called Ulia Lialina, who proved that it's actually possible to make an artwork, digital artwork, put it online and sell it and still keep the artwork for free out there. So the act of buying an artwork is actually a kind of symbolic action. It's a ritual in a certain way with some legal implications, of course. But the NFTs, I just read up on it like a month ago with this guy who sold the work for 62... Yeah, people. Yeah. (laughs) But when looking into it, to me... It's all, it has more to do with the world of finance than the world of art in a certain way.
0: Agreed.
1: So I'm not so interested in it because artistically, I mean, it's interesting what he actually, he did with this famous collage or this sampling of how many
0: million. 5,000 images he made one a day for 10 years, I think, something like that.
1: But to me, it's kind of a novelty which is maybe interesting in the world of Bitcoin and maybe the art collectors that are only in it for the money. And I mean, let's face it, the art world is such a big part of the black market economy.
0: Yeah, I've got the feeling that the whole NFT thing is primarily more about uh, uh, money laundering, basically.
1: Exactly, exactly. Because I can say I buy, let's say you make an NFT in an hour and I say, yeah, I buy it for so-and-so many, bitcoins or I don't know we can even use dollars and I say yeah I paid you $20,000 for it and then you make another one and I pay another 20,000 aren't those money then laundered in a certain way already
0: to be clear as a disclaimer I have absolutely no proof of my accusation that it's money laundering it's purely my own opinion
1: no, no, but I'll be happy to go along with the idea that it could be about money and this money laundering thing. It was a TV series here in Norway, just like recently called Exit. It's about the financial market, more like yuppie people, you know, doing cocaine and doing all these women, cars, cocaine, and expensive watches.
0: Ah, the good old days.
1: Yeah, yeah, that kind of what's it called? This this movie with DiCaprio. Oh, Wolf
0: of Wall Street.
1: Yeah, exactly. Or the other one with Michael Douglas. But anyway, they used art as just money laundering machines. They buy some art. They never watch it. They have it in a container. They do buy it, but no one knows how much to worth. what's the actual worth of this painting or this sculpture or this NFT. So it's this kind of very vague world. I'm not super interested in it, as it when it comes to art, but... I wish there were some juicy stories about money
0: laundering coming up. Then I would read more. Just wait. I'm sure they'll come out in a couple of years. I'm sure. All right. Last little topic that I saw on your stuff on your CV is a thing. Project Space Landers.
1: Yeah, it's Project Space Landers. So it's a project space in Landers, California.
0: Okay. Got it. Yeah. Subtle difference, but important.
1: Yeah, that's a kind of fun story. There's a woman I met here in Oslo like seven years ago, eight years ago. Her name is Chiara Giovando. And she was part of a group that curated shows at a place called Human Resources in Los Angeles. It's a big old cinema in the old downtown area. And now old Chinatown, sorry. And I thought, oh, this is my big break. In my head, that was like MoMA. I mean, I stopped working with Amanda. The group kind of broke up, the relationship broke up. So I was kind of a solo artist. I thought, oh, this is my super big break. I I did some years with sound art installations that grew. And then I thought, this is my big thing in Los Angeles. So I went back and forth the next year, back and forth, to look at this place and had these grand ideas. And then you know, a month before, I called Chiara and I said, yeah, Okay so let's the opening is on Friday isn't it and she said yeah that's fine make sure you make something that can be taken down by Sunday and it's like what are you kidding because in my head it I was going to be there for at least like 3 weeks or this was my big show right and then i was really disappointed and she said oh yeah i see oh and then she had just bought a house out in Joshua Tree California in the high desert which is like three hours east of Los Angeles. And she invited me to make something there, something different, which I did. So I was alone there for a couple of weeks. She left me there in the house. I lost my way out there. You know, it was kind of exciting. And then she left me there. She just showed me the house. And I was so afraid of, you know, snakes and crazy people and meth heads and spiders and coyotes and Mad Max people. and So I was terrified, but still I woke up, which I never do, otherwise I woke up every morning like five o'clock at sunrise and I started working very happily. I didn't have a phone connection, no internet. I was so happy and it was exciting and a bit scary. And also I managed to make a little installation and kinetic sculpture with some guitars. Well, anyway, that was done. I was about to go home and I thought, oh, I have to buy some land here, like, you know, like 30 square
0: meters to put up a tent or whatever, a mobile home. You can buy just 30 square meters?
1: No, I didn't know anything about what you could buy or not buy. and I had a flat in Oslo, that was all. But I didn't know anything about anything like that, and especially not in California. But I started looking for just like properties, and then... I did it well. It kind of snowballed a little bit. So I ended up buying a house. It's a long story, actually. I bought one and I lost it in something. It's a legal process called escrow. But I bought a house and finally I found a house and then I just bought it. I brought or took a mortgage from Norway and actually bought it. Pretty cheap. It's a small place with two and a half acres and 50 square meters with water and electricity. And I installed Wi-Fi. So I started being there as a kind of an escape, I guess, from my life in Oslo and also the history in a certain way. And I guess, uh, to be honest, like myself in a certain way. But I was also curious to discover who this person, (laughs) me, is without my network of people and kind of all its stories. So I got this place, got out there all by myself and started meeting people and people, you know, asked, oh, where are you from? And it's like, yeah, I'm from Norway. And they say, all right. And, th- and that's it. They didn't ask very much.
0: Really? I get the, in America, they always ask, what do you do?
1: Yeah, well, if they do and they say, yeah, I'm a kind of artist position. Then, all right, right, right. One of those.
0: Yep, that, that ends the conversation again. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So I certainly found out, oh, everything I've done, it's worth kind of nothing here. So I had to rebuild in a certain way. I'm just one of those because there are lots of kind of poor people, poor artists, but also more successful artists who ventured out there to discover nature, some kind of other way of being, I guess. and
0: Peyote and mescaline. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. That was the start of it, I guess, in a certain way in like 60s, 70s. And it, it kind of developed into new age and. But also this kind of mad max as people are in during gentrification in Los Angeles, people are squeezed out and they moving out of the big cities and out to the desert. The meth definitely had some impact in that story. People are out there to cook. There's so vast areas and people could set up mobile lab anywhere.
0: Oh, I'm, I'm all for it. I, my big dream these days is actually to live in my, this is my dream. I want to live somewhere where I can go out on my front porch naked and see nobody. Yeah. And nobody sees me.
1: I found a place like that. So I tried to rediscover my own art. My It's a kind of a studio. It's a one room. It's a bedroom and a studio and a kitchen and a porch and a car. And that's about it. So then to discover how will I spend my day? What will I actually eat without anyone noticing or looking or will I get up? Yes, I will get up. Will I wash? Yeah, I actually do that. And I don't drink all the time or smoke weed all the time or just, you know, do nothing. I actually produce and I discover and I discover new people. So I found that immensely interesting and also to discover all these lives out there why and how people got there and it's fascinating and it's such big it expanded my scale of understanding different kind of trajectories in life immensely because people are so different out there and i love it and now i set it up as a kind of working space and also recreational space for myself but also for others so i'm using it or lending it out I call it a residency, very unpretentious. But if you want to go, you send me a mail or you call me and, and you have it. But I say it's at least for a month and it's for free. Although you pay the utilities like water and Wi-Fi and that's it. And you decide what to do there. You don't have to show anything or produce anything. It's there if you want to write, if you want to stare at the stars, it's fine.
0: That sounds magical in many ways.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's not like I saw the series based on that book, I Love Dick. It's about an artist who in Marfa, Texas. He's the guy Dick. There's a couple moving there, and both of them falls in love with this guy Dick. But he has this place, which is pristine, of course. He goes out naked with his boots on, looks at the rattlesnake and and at the sunrise. But it's a little bit more... (laughs) i do see houses i do see some people so i hear my neighbor's dog barking 24 7 and you know it, it has its definitely its reality which is not the hollywood movie but it's still fantastic i really i miss it so much i haven't been there for one and a half years now
0: well i mean that's the thing is like artists generally want like i think that i forget what i could come up with i think it's four things time space and money Okay, it's three things. I mean, the, you know, so like the ability to just sort of drop out of all these stresses of daily life and then be able to devote your time to even just thinking, much less producing, it without distraction, is an incredible luxury.
1: Yeah, it is a luxury. So I'm going to keep that and use it. So if anyone wants to go there, I mean, it's too small to have lots of people there. So I'm usually, when I'm there, I, I'm usually there by myself or with maybe friends visiting. But, but if someone wants to be there by themselves and they have to take full responsibility of keeping the house. I don't like Airbnb, that system, because it kind of gentrifies this area. Now it's rich people from, you know, the West Coast who goes there to have parties and take drugs and play loud music. And it's not what it's actually for. I mean, I don't mind people doing that, of course, but I want people to go to to explore the actual state of being there and to discover the neighbors and the nature and, you know, the animals. It sounds fabulous.
0: Let's sort of wrap this up. I have two last questions I ask everybody. So the first one would be three contemporary artists. Now, given that you're in music, it can be any form of artists. Uh, So just contemporary artists that you're looking at that you think are are sort of noteworthy or that influence you or anything like that
1: oh you should have given me some time to prepare
0: no i love springing this on people this that if you prepare then it's not as interesting
1: i take this much too seriously you know so for me this would be disaster when i
0: later tonight you could say more than three three is just a random number i made up
1: yeah yeah sure the first one who actually brings to mind is, is James Terrell. Of course. Yes, I see that. I'd say one musician, he's called Kid Koala, he's Canadian. He comes from kind of hip-hop and electronica. And I got to know him a little bit. I've listened to some of his albums. I discovered Patreon, this service called Patreon, through him when the pandemic hit. And it's like you pay $10 a month, which is like here in Norway, that's like a beer. So and then he you get access to some of his shows and he makes kind of music for reading he calls it it's not like ambient it's a little bit more groovy but it's not like with lyrics and every week every monday night he produces a show to our live show where the patrons meet and he has this kind of little video stream which is kind of a little bit arty and i get access to that and some insights of how he actually produces so it's the transparency of the whole process of making something and being an artist in these pandemic times. So he at least inspires me. So that's two. And there's one filmmaker over here, actually, who is probably not so well known, but she's called Itonia e. Guttormsen. But she made a film, her first feature film, and it's called Grit. It's about an artist, another female artist in her, let's say, late thirties or early forties, who struggles about existence and everything. And she goes to New York, but she's an idealist in a certain way, but also kind of a dreamer. She has her ideas are too big for the actual world, and she's not capable of producing any of it. But she's very funny, and she's also she struggles in an existential way. And I love that it's made by this young collective, not, well, without the big film systems. And it's also, I have to mention also my dear friend here in Oslo. It's a young artist called Hanan Benamar. Her family is from Algeria and she lived in Paris. And I met her 10 years ago in Oslo. She was, you know, 20. I mean, she's the same age as my son, my oldest son. She's great. She's temperamental. But we did... Played together, we're always discussing politics. And she was part of a collective who made a very famous theatrical piece here in Norway called Ways of Seeing, based on the title from Berger. She's a fighter and a provocateur in many ways. And also fights for, you know, the equality of races and politics. So it's important struggles when we're talking about politics. Because I think someone actually has to keep that fight going that the generation actually before us, the hippies or the 68ers, as we call them here, did. And then later, maybe the political movements of the 70s, where I wasn't so involved. And I was living through the 90s, where politics was just kind of go happy. It was kind of the pre-neoliberalism. Everything opened up. I was so happy and felt free. But now I see the need for more political action.
0: It's marvelous. All right. The last question, of course, is just advice for the next generation. What could they do to have more, we'll say like, quote unquote, successful careers? I would say don't
1: worry about it. The career. Worry about the world. Be active. Just be active all the time. Just engage with people. Be curious. Take part. Say yes. I mean, it's almost like this. I haven't read that novel, I heard about it, this, or this principle of just saying yes to absolutely anything that people proposes or this dice man. But I would say, say yes, it's a good advice. Just do it because at least, but it's maybe an old person's advice. I'm not sure because I think the world is different now.
0: My professors gave the same advice. They used to say, "Whenever somebody comes to you—a curator, a gallerist, a professional, you know, commercial client, whatever—you the answer is always yes. Then you figure out how to do it." Yeah, exactly,
1: and that's the advice. And also, don't be afraid to step outside your boundaries in a certain way to be unsafe, because if you've done that enough times, that's also a matter of learning to cope with. It's like improvisation in music or in all forms of art, live art. It's like what happens and you learn to pick up. You need to learn to listen and look and be aware of people around you in a certain way and then pick up and try your best to adapt to it because, you know, I've learned to know that the others are always as insecure as I am. That's a liberation to acknowledge that because I know that I'm not alone in being, feeling insecure in this setting. And then I relax, actually. Yeah. And to young people, it's hard sometimes because you think that, and and maybe we do, I mean, we as older or as teachers expect certain things and we're disappointed if they don't do it that way, but that resistance will make you stronger. I'm not sure. I find it hard. I think they know best what to do, but we have to play the role, don't we, to
0: pretend to give advice. Uh, It's not a pretend to give advice thing. It's a what i've noticed is, is when i talk to people who are you know, even mid-career slash later in their careers like they their perspective is um you know that time and distance gives them a little bit of more understanding cuz like if now that i've done this podcast so i've done 170 some episodes by now and i've realized so many things it was funny i had this conversation with an old friend of mine the other day and basically there are are elements of the creative industries that we're not allowed to know until we've been in it for 20 years like there are things that like you can't understand how they fit together or why they fit together until you've had some experiences time and perspective on having gone through those things so like if you know contemporary me now were to go back to 20 something year old me and tell them the things that i know now that are the truths about the art world i wouldn't believe it in my 20s i'd be like no that that can't be it's not like that it's this but because you're you're not willing to like sort of accept it and say like oh okay it is that screwed up or oh that is wrong so the idea of the the advice at the end of the podcast is to try and give some of the younger listeners or, or you know, mid-career listeners some, some words that help them to maybe attain some of that information that we've gotten now that we're later in our careers um, so that they don't have to have such difficulty with theirs.
1: Yeah, I totally agree. And to accept that we all make kind of mistakes and we're unsure or maybe...
0: About our art or our work in a certain way. This whole podcast is all about all the mistakes that I've made in my career. Exactly,
1: because I love it. I even made a career out of making a, to ask artists who to at the symposium series that was about failed artworks. Actually, and it was the most I had never had bigger success in my life because it, first people were very reluctant to take part. It was called Reality Check. And it was about failed art projects and no one wanted to admit that their or their attempt was a failure. But then the first one happened and then the second, and it was a kind of a little success. The second one was a big success and everyone loved it. And even at number three, like a couple of months later, people started phoning me day and night because they wanted to be part of it. And I had to say, no, you're not a failure. That's not a failed artwork, but maybe it wasn't very good. But this, yeah, but I'm a failure. I'm a failure. And they, people started twisting this, the show at this, it's a, like a confession booth kind of show almost. And they started faking it, making a song. So they, they twisted it. It took the whole air out of the balloon. So it became a failure. Yeah. The failure or the idea of failure. And in my opinion, you should flaunt it and, make it a feature in a certain way.
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, I I recently had a guest who was talking, like she, she worked as an intern at Christie's and then she later in her career, she ended up working at Christie's and I sat there and I'm like, okay, so you, your internship was literally like leading you to the path of your career. That's magnificent. And then I reflected on my own internships when I was a kid and like all of my internships ended up being me trying something and realizing that I never want to work in that industry. Right. Right. So like, I know all kinds of stuff about what I don't want to do, but boy, I never figured out exactly what I do want to do.
1: But I think, isn't that equally important or even maybe more sometimes to know what you definitely don't want to be or do? It is very important.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: That guy or, or that person in that car, or I, that's not me. I don't want to be like that. And then you, Okay, no BMW here, you know, or whatever. I don't want to be that guy.
0: I have a great story about that. I was a, I was a roadie at the 9:30 club, and Tricky was playing, and we all, all the crew dressed in drag that night for Tricky, and it was magnificent. We ended up partying with him until like six in the morning. So we're we're still in drag, and we walk out of this after hours club, and we we're all sitting there having done many, many drugs all night. And we're looking at all these people walking around in business suits and they're all very sad and they just sort of look like drones, just sort of like, oh, they're just going to their jobs. And we'd looked at each other and we're like, yeah, but our job is to dress in drag, do a bunch of cocaine and party with rock stars. You know, I don't want their life, but I want this life.
1: This is our role. And sometimes I say this is part of the job, actually, to dress in drag and take drugs. It's actually part of our job because if we start as artists, start wearing suits and and working nine to five. I think we've we've ruined also for other people the character. We've kind of we didn't fill the character. I think it's a character you have to play it. At least it was like that for me when when I learned about Jim Morrison or whoever it was, artists who, well, some of them died uh, too early. But this romantic kind of idea, it kind of meant so much to me because I felt different. I think everyone, all teenagers in the world or in the Western world feel different or feels like an outsider. But that's so important. That's an important thing. Know what you don't want to do.
0: Indeed. All right. Well, that's a beautiful way to end this. So. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Matt. Okay, continuing on about arts funding in Scandinavian regions.
1: Yeah. Now, we're lucky to have such a good system. And I I noticed how, for instance, in the United States, where they have very few or almost non-existent funding for artists, how that makes different art. So it's not as easy for them to or that explains why they're not so into, let's say, avant-garde art as we are in, in Europe and especially up here or my little corners of the art world because this is such a luxury we can make things we get state funded we can explore all these boundaries and almost paid by the state to do so while over there in the states if you don't get an
0: audience you make nothing well i've come to this is my perspective this is my belief now i might be wrong in this so tell me if i'm wrong but i believe that it's basically this in america the idea is Produce The artist produces a thing, they put it on display, either they get the audience or they get people buying it, and then they are able to reinvest that income and produce more. Whereas in Europe, it's come up with a great idea, propose it to somebody, they fund the production of it so that by the time, so the actual exhibition or presentation of it, it's irrelevant if it's sold because it's already been paid for.
1: Yeah, but that's completely right. I'm trying to explain to my American friends when we were discussing this that I'm also selling something. I'm indeed I'm a sort of a, I also have to make a living, of course. To get those grants, it's not like you just get it. You have to fight for it. Obviously, let's say I get the funding. That's half the work to get the funding, and then you actually have to produce. You can do whatever you want, but you still have to. Well,
0: you're paid in a different way, so to speak. Well, okay wait you say you have to fight for it like how hard because like in America my god we have to fight tooth and nail to to get any amount of funding much less substantial funding so like how hard is it really to get funding
1: well I would say it's not that hard okay but it's because I've been lucky maybe and some people accuse me of being you know a uh, opportunist in a certain way I know the language i know the the, the phrases to use. And that's the normal accusation that people would say you're as smart as, you know, the, the right phrases. And a really good artist, he's great at painting, but he
0: can't even write. Well, but that's the trick. Like, that's the thing. Like, if you can, even in America, like, if you can eloquently express your ideas, you will get curators and galleries and funding and residencies and all these other things because it's the the words that sort of are the application processes to get you in the doors for all these things so like it has less to do with skilled ability to make art and more with like knowing the right vernacular to be able to use the bud- buzzwords of the time in order to get the that opportunity
1: it's partly true
0: actually it is true
1: to a certain extent but it's also a very classical discussion because or between the technical or let's say the skilled like a Rebrandt' attitude versus the conceptual art attitude. Because you could say that the idea about an artwork is equally, is maybe the basis of it, or maybe that's the essence of it. Or is it the actual execution, the actual painting or the photography? Or is it the concept where you end up with a black photography with a white dot or whatever? you know?
0: Well, you could ask Saul LeWitt. I'm sure he would give you a good answer.
1: Yeah, I'm sure. But to hear the acceptance actually in the system and, and in lots of people's minds that art is also some kind of it very closely and overlaps with philosophy in so many ways. I th- I find that liberating and actually very good because it also takes away those skills, the limits, where it's also so much kitsch and so much bad taste and people who are very skilled but make like very tacky commercials or very things that contain no juxtapositions in any of the layers or oh yeah you know what i mean maybe
0: i do i mean and just to be clear i want to be like lay out my position on this i love the way europe does it i'm all about it i wish that i had known that that was the difference between the two because if i had known that i probably would have like come and gotten my education in europe rather than in america because that whole system like i remember being a student and looking at europe and there were these magnificent absurd great crazy projects being done what you would probably call avant-garde and we're sitting there we're like that's fucking amazing like how did they fund that like i mean I can come up with these crazy, great, magnificent, huge, you know, colossal ideas. But in America, I can't fund it or there's no place to exhibit it or no place willing to exhibit it. Whereas in Europe, they're all about the absurd extent to you know, pushing the boundaries and the limits of things in ways that in America they never do or very rarely do. And so I'm all about the way that Europe does it. And I wish that I had learned that. Again, this goes back to like, I wish I had learned that when I was in my 20s so that I could have participated in it more effectively and better and earlier.
1: But for good and bad, I mean, the world changes and Europe has become more like the States and and the States, the United States, the systems might not have changed so much, but people's attitudes towards the system has changed. I see the young generations of United States, especially along the coasts and in the big cities. It's changing. It's more Bernie Sanders and more Europe in a certain way, social democracy as we, or the welfare state in a certain way. While Europe is, well, as you know, turning kind of dark brown or black, you know, into fascism in certain countries and right wing. So that struggle, it's not set good. I mean, we have to, I think we really have to fight for it, but I think still Europe is far more educated in that kind of, in the way of thinking. I I just hope it will prevail. All right.
0: That's a good place to end
1: that. Yeah. That's a good place to cut.
0: As many of you know, I have a thing for the algorithm that rules our lives. But one thing I figured out you can do to help us is to give us star ratings or comments. So go to your device that you're listening to this podcast through and click and give some sort of rating or a comment would be incredibly appreciated. It's one of the few things that you can do that does not involve any sort of money or other efforts. It does just take a few seconds and it would help us immensely. We are produced by 5014. I am your host, Matthew Doles, and the audio for this episode was edited by Jakub Czerny. The Wise Fool is supported in part by an EEA grant from Iceland, Liechtenstein, and Norway, in an effort to work together for a green, competitive, and inclusive Europe. We would also like to thank our partners Hunt Kastner in Prague, Czech Republic, and Centrene i Norge in Norway. Links to EEA grants and our partner organizations are available in the show notes or on our website, wisefoolpod.com.